As we looked last week in our time together, you recall the scene that we're dealing with here in the first chapter, and that is Ruth, Naomi, and Orpah are together is what I have kind of framed in, and I think is the situation from the narrator's perspective by the framing of the voices and wept, and then episode number two of raising their voices and weeping together is that they are the three women here at what I have labeled a fork in the road or uh, the idea of a crossroads in their lives. There is a decision that has to be made at this point in the text that is then going to define all three of them. Naomi, as we ended our time last week, convinced Orpah, and we'll deal with that just a tiny little bit, but really we're pressing on this morning. I know you're amazed, but we are pressing forward into Ruth this week. But consider that Naomi has convinced Orpah to go to Beth, that going to Bethlehem is simply too risky. There is too much risk involved. There is unknown after unknown after unknown. And as she explains that unto Orpah, Orpah agrees. And then I, in our time last week, and I submit to you yet again this morning, that what is here in the exchange between Naomi Orpah and Ruth, particularly considering Naomi and Orpah, is the pattern set forth in Scripture of what we consider to be the cost of discipleship. We might ask ourselves at different points in time within our own Christian life, with our walk with Christ on our pilgrim's journey, what is that cost more clearly? What is it particularly that is the cost of discipleship? Well, as many of you know, which has been quite famously rehearsed, published, and I think even a miniseries movie, I think at one point, um, is that statement by Dietrich Bonhoeffer. It's famous because it's good. Describing the cost of discipleship. That is, as Dietrich Bonhoeffer spoke, as we consider also Orpah and Naomi and Ruth, he says this of the cost of discipleship. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. He then elaborates a little further on what that cost then looks like. In other words, is Dietrich Bonhoeffer or did Dietrich Bonhoeffer refer to martyrdom is the call of discipleship unto Christ, the conversion call to come unto Christ? Is it a call to martyrdom? Physically and exclusively. No. Dietrich Bonhoeffer clarifies. Quote, It may be a death like that of the first disciples who had to leave home and leave work to follow Christ. It may be a death like Luther's who had to leave the monastery and go out into the world. But it is the same death every time. Death in Jesus Christ. The death of the old man at his call. End quote. So you see, as he describes it here, I would pair that to Orpah, as we looked last week. As we consider her hearing of the facts, for Orpah, the cost of the call to go to Bethlehem with Naomi, to the land of Judah, unto the God of Israel, for Orpah, the cost of that call remained to be too great. The risk was simply too high. In some, we could perhaps frame it in the gospel this way, Orpah missed the pearl of great price. Now, just before we, the readers, hear in this narrative portion of Ruth, 
just before we get too doubtful about the situation, right? We've now covered from verse 1, we've covered there's three dead men in the narrative. Limelech and his two sons, both, all three of them are dead. Naomi is in a faith crisis. Orpah has agreed that it's really not worth traveling all the way to Bethlehem for whatever remains to be there for her. The risk is too high. Adri, my wife, and I have been watching a program. I don't know if any of you watch um, uh, Masterpiece Theater. Um, And it offers various shows and so forth on public TV. We've been watching a program called Mr. Selfridge for a portion of time now. And I, by the time we've got, I think we're on season two or maybe season three, whatever it is. At this point in time, the story is unraveling. Everybody in the story is melting down. Everybody's providence is turning dark, gray, and even worse. Finally, after episode one, I was kind of drawn into the characters in seasons one and two or season one, whatever it was. And then by the end of episode one, I told Adrian, I can't watch the show anymore. I can't sit here and watch people's lives systematically unravel. It's too much for me. It's, it's, it's just, I'm not built for this kind of viewing. Um, so either I'm rolling over, going to sleep, or, or, you know, we just quit watching the show. I, I don't want to watch it. Like, I, I'm rooting for this guy, and down it goes, down it goes, down it goes, and so on and so forth. So it is with our Constitution, perhaps, as readers facing the narrative of Ruth. Three dead men. A woman in a moment of faith crisis. Orpah who has bailed out of the boat and turned not just simply to go back home, but as the the writer frames at the very end, she went back to polytheism. That's the death in the story for Orpah. She goes back to her mother's home, yes, but to her gods, plural. And we never hear from her again. So for me and you, I imagine at some point in your reading also, we're like people who are viewing a story that is just continuing to get dark or worse before it gets better. But as we intersect here at this point where the narrative makes a hard right turn, that is, enter in the character of Ruth. We're now zeroing in on Ruth. And right at this moment, as we're considering Orpah, Elimelech, the two sons, and Naomi, we are reminded, we, the people of God, are reminded as expectant readers that Yahweh is well known. That is, the God of Israel is well known throughout redemptive history for turning tragedy into triumph. So we as expectant readers, by faith, rightly expect that according to God's covenant faithfulness to Israel and His mercy to sinners, we will see a hard right turn, perhaps, of providence. We'll see His mercy unfold. We'll see His covenant faithfulness to Israel shine forth. We will see his grace break the dark clouds of this bleak and ugly providence. But how do we get into the text this morning to see this so that we don't roll over and go to sleep on the narrative? So that we don't say, we're not watching these episodes anymore. We just can't take it. Let's skip somewhere, I don't know, somewhere in the New Testament. Let's go to a gospel story, some sort of healing to lift our spirits. How do we stay with the narrative and rightly expect the Lord? to intervene with His mercy and His grace and change the lives of these women. We'll consider the first step. Consider with me once again the, pro- the uh, context. I rehearse for you briefly just the idea of the context because it is so important for what we are about to see with the young woman, Ruth. Remember, you have to put this in your mind as a reader this morning. That Ruth, just recall with me, please remember, Ruth is by providence in the exact same situation as Orpah. Now, again, I want to highlight for you the term providence. Ruth is by providence in the exact same situation as Orpah. In other words, we as the people of God reject the idea of serendipity. 
who saw the movie in the 90s or something like that, I think, late 90s. We reject the idea of serendipitous fortune. Things don't happen stance for us. We recognize it is an orchestration of the divine. It is the Lord at work in human history. It is the Lord at work by means in the earth whereby we find our place in life. He is sovereign. He is in control. He is orchestrating. And He is leading. And so we find out for Naomi, Orpah, and Ruth, as Naomi speaks to Orpah, Ruth is also present and on the same footing as Orpah. That is critical to what we're going to see this morning about the gospel. That is, with this in mind, that it's not one thing for Ruth and another thing for Orpah and Naomi standing here and telling Orpah these terrible details and somehow Ruth remains, remo- uh, Ruth remains removed from those same facts. No, she's standing at the same crossroads. This way to Moab, this way to Bethlehem. And this is what's at stake for both of you. With that in mind, let me suggest with this, with this flattening out of everybody's skin in the game, this is where the grace of God in this particular incident with Ruth becomes even more clearly discernible from a parallel discussion that was read for you just a moment ago. And that is the context of the rich young ruler. Now, you who have been here before know at times I bite off way more than I can chew and we're here nearly two hours. Everybody take a deep breath. I've restricted myself, learning my lessons over time as you are patient with me. So I say that to say, I won't be able to walk through the rich young ruler and Ruth. You'll all want to kill me by the end. So I've decided to take advantage with the rich young ruler's narrative being read for you already. Therefore, I won't read. Because, you know, I start a sentence, make a comment, and I didn't intend to, and I never get out of it. So let me just give you what was already read for you, and you've probably read before, so you'll call to mind with me. But this is where the parallel pattern of the New Testament with the rich young ruler comes and clarifies even the narrative here as we read Ruth. Consider in the hearing of the rich young ruler, Christ was speaking clearly, right? So Christ is speaking to this rich young ruler. And the disciples are present. So key in in this parallelism, and again, it breaks down somewhere, yet not at the substance of the parallelism. The substance remains, but the parts might be a little bit movable. Consider that Naomi is speaking. Now, I'm not here saying that Naomi is a type of Christ. Again, I'm simply saying there is a pattern discussion, a parallel discussion that is taking place, and one sheds light on the other. And that is, consider that as Christ is speaking to the rich young ruler, the disciples are present, are they not? And they hear in the hearing of Christ's speech to the rich young ruler the exact same call. There is no detail that the disciples are not hearing. There is not something that they are missing. They're not removed or aloof. They are keyed in on the discussion. They're there. And they hear as the rich young ruler hears who is being addressed specifically. But you have to ask yourselves. The narrative takes a shift, doesn't it? The speech that then follows after the discussion is upon the lips of who? The disciples. In other words, Christ knows they're present. As he speaks to this young man, he is speaking to them. So they hear, number one, consider this parallel pattern. They hear the exact same call. It's not a call for you in one way to come unto Christ. That, you know, you you just don't have to forsake anything or turn and lay hold of him by faith. You can kind of take all of your accoutrements from the world and then add Christ to it and then choose what way he rules. This way or that way or in this category or another category. Now for them over there, they have to forsake everything and come to him by faith alone. 
But, but for us, we're able to do. There's not percentages in different providences within the one call or the one call and cost of discipleship. So as he speaks to this one young man, the disciples are clearly present, hearing not another command or call, but the exact same. Do you see already the pattern emerging that sheds light yet again on what takes place in the Gospel of Ruth? The exact same call. Ruth is hearing the exact same risk that Orpah hears. The exact same weight is present on the ears of Ruth. Second portion is the disciples are here in this patterned parallel example. They grasp the exact same weight in terms of what is at stake. They know what is at stake. When they hear, give away all that you have and follow me. Notice, it isn't a law to get rid of all your money. That is, you know, pay, buy your ticket and be redeemed. Uh, That's not at all what was at stake. Because in a measurable way, maybe not with a rich young ruler, but maybe with some other people based on constitution or wiring, they simply would make that call. They're like, okay, good, I'll pay money. I'll pay whatever it is. Just let me have the the salvation or, or let me have the relationship. I'll pay. So it wasn't that, and they clearly discerned it wasn't about the money. Here they stand. Here's the discussion. They are a part of it as an audience. They hear exactly what is at stake. How do we know that? Where am I getting this? Notice what question they ask. They're not astonished, as the text says, because someone would have to give away their money. They're astonished that everyone has to give away everything. That's what astonishes them, is that Christ must be supreme. Every form of idolatry must be utterly forsaken and rejected. Everything. So maybe for the rich young man, it was his riches, as the story seems to indicate quite clearly. He zeroed in on the idolatry. I've done this, 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 and this, but what else? I've done everything. Do this one thing. Ooh. I'm going away sorrowful. And they didn't think, man... Good thing money's not our problem, because we're going to be all right. No, they were astonished, and it prompted them to ask, then who can be saved? They knew what was at stake. Who, in other words, on the minds of the disciples, who can see weakness as strength. Who can do that? They were astonished, asking, who can be saved? As in, who out of anybody, anywhere can make that calculation? Who could do that? Who could let go of that which they love supremely and lay hold of you alone? Who could do that? Who can see weakness as strength? As the narrative ends, who can grasp that being last is being first? Who can grasp the paradox that by dying, you're actually living? Who, if, if grasping the sense of forsaking everything, for as we said, faith, forsaking all I take him. Who can be saved? That is the response that Christ gets at, leading his disciples there by this conversation as his audience. Do you remember 
the gospel-centered promise, the pronouncement, the victory announcement of that text to the disciples and to everyone who reads by faith as we recognize the answer from Christ to who in the room right now can be saved. Do you recall his answer? With man, this is impossible. With a simply worldly wisdom, or looking at the facts of the case, weighing them out correctly, we join yet back to Orpah, and Ruth, and Naomi, and Orpah sees the facts of the case. The risk is too high. It's way too involved. It makes no sense to do this. I'm going back to my mom and her polytheism. It's safer. And Christ says, indeed, with man, that is, with women, with individuals, with human beings, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. That is the pronouncement of the gospel. Man cannot save himself. Man cannot simply look at the facts of the case, weigh out that indeed the best pathway right now is to get rid of everything we hold for security and provision. It's the best move for us to become as weak as possible in order that we might become the strongest of possibles. If I lose, that's great because I'm actually gaining. If I die, I'm winning and gaining. I'm coming to life. With man, this is an impossible calculation. Join with me back in Ruth then as I say, this is a parallel conversation or a parallel narrative to Ruth, Orpah, and Naomi with a rich young ruler, Christ, and his disciples. The pronouncement is the same because, number one, consider with me just briefly, the circumstances, once again, for Orpah and Ruth are exactly the same. I recall or rehearse for you just briefly, Orpah and Ruth are hearing on the lips of Naomi to not go back to Bethlehem with her. Why? Because Orpah gets it. We'll have no husbands. We're dealing with a culture that is radically different than ours, post-Murphy Brown. I don't know if anybody in here even knows who Murphy Brown is. There was a big thing about her being a single mother. And that's kind of, I think, people play somewhere in the 90s as like the massive cultural shift in our time that was made popular on TV that a woman indeed could be a single mother and meet every demand that was upon her in mother and fatherhood combined. And many term that into the 90s shift on the view of where we presently kind of end up and we just keep going. But that's not what we're dealing with here. In this culture and in this time of history, to have no husband clearly Orpah, Naomi, and Ruth at that, at that crossroads recognize the exact same reality. Orpah, get it. Ruth, understand. If you have no husband, you have no provisions. If you have no husband, you have no inheritance. If you have no husband, you have no people. Nothing, you have nothing. With man, this is impossible. The call is the exact same in those circumstances. Go to Bethlehem to the land of Judah, unto Israel's God. That is the faithfulness of the Lord being seen in Bethlehem. Come with me to Bethlehem, or go to Bethlehem, to the God of Israel. He has visited to nourish his people. And the call is the same. You have to risk the husbandry. You have to risk or forsake the inheritance. You have to look for a new people and forsake your own people that are outside the covenant of Israel's God. The call is is the same. Forsake everything and come to Christ. To the rich young ruler, get rid of your stash. No. I'd rather live with it and be a bit sorrowful. 
The disciples got it. They knew what he was saying. And I submit to you, though the circumstances for Orpah and Ruth are the same, that's critical to the narrative to make Ruth as that diamond shine. Is that there is not one set of rules for Ruth and another one for Orpah. And though the circumstances remain the same, the call is exactly the same. It may be, as we have heard in the opening, it might be to leave home. It might be to leave work. It might be to go out into the world and stop uh, isolating yourselves. Either way, it's death of the same type every, every time. Death in Christ Jesus. Death of the old man at his call. And this is where the two roads in the uh, wood diverge. This is where one, they're at this crossroads, and one makes that right-hand turn and goes to Bethlehem. That is, the circumstances and the call remain the same, but it is the response to those very same set of circumstances that is absolutely different. Simply uh, to summarize our narrative portion to this point, Orpah, as you know, sought refuge in Moab. She went back, and Ruth sought refuge in Israel. Let me read for you the text. If you're there in Ruth 1, I join now with the narrative portion of reading verse 14, and we'll begin there. Verse 14, then they lifted up their voices and they wept again. And here is, again, the point of the crossroads in our our narrative. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye. I added goodbye, as you know. Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. Look at Naomi's response. We'll get into this just a little bit in the next couple of moments. She said, see, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. For Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord do to me, do so to me, and more also if anything but death parts me from you. The last portion there. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go, she said no more. I want to draw your attention out of this little portion of verses 15 through 18. I want to highlight two things here in our last few moments here. Two things that we learn or are instructed in regarding the grace of God in salvation as we see it in the portrait of Ruth. There are two things here that we will see within this text that help our understanding or inform our understanding, shape our confession regarding the grace of God in the portrait of Ruth. Those two things I now jump to. Number one, The first thing here that we learn about the grace of God in the portrait of Ruth is this. God's grace is sovereignly administered. Number one, God's grace is sovereignly administered. That is, it is God who sovereignly distributes and applies His saving grace. In summary, we see, and simply put, kind of a subtitle to that, what we see in verse 16 is that Ruth is regenerated. That's why it's critical that we grasp that it isn't one set of circumstances for Ruth and another set of circumstances for Orpah. They're at the same crossroads. The call upon both of them is equal in measure. 
the outlook is just as bleak. We ask ourselves, what then is the difference between Ruth and her response and Orpah and her response since they were both in the exact same providence? Both husbands have died. Naomi speaks to both of them regarding the same terms, the same weight of the call to follow Christ. What is the difference in the hearing of facts? Ruth knew full well what was at stake. And in response to the facts, as they are explained to her simply put, Ruth, you have nothing. You're a Moabitess in the land of Judah. It's going to be even worse for you than here. Stay here. You have nothing. I can give you nothing. And yet, Ruth did what? Look at the text. Ruth clung to her. No, 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 no. I told you to go back. And Ruth clung to her. I'm not going back. Consider the divine grace at work in the experience of Ruth's conversion. You have to appreciate the fact of Ruth's response as a testimony, not of Ruth's intestinal fortitude or in her simple calculation of the facts. It was regeneration at work. The Spirit had given life to Ruth. She saw the facts. And she laid hold of Naomi. And then consider even more the divine grace at work as Ruth was effectually. Now get this. She is, again, we will not rehearse all the facts, but you know them. I've said them probably 5,000 times even just this morning. You have to appreciate that Ruth was effectually evangelized by Naomi who was not even spiritually healthy herself. She can't even see through the cloud of mourning and hurt and hardship. She's in the middle of an emotional and faith tornado. She can't see up or down, left or right. We know believers in those circumstances. Some now, some in our past, others who will be in the future or ourselves. We can't see up or down in the spinning of the tornado. We don't know if we're right side up or not. We don't know. So we say things that perhaps are not theologically pure. We make judgments and statements about God and His work that are less than healthy. Because it's coming from a place of mourning, humanness, and weakness. He remembers, we said in Psalm 103, He remembers that we are but dust. And when we think ourselves better than that, we are wrong. And Ruth, all it takes is one experience like Naomi to recognize, indeed, Lord, we are but dust. And Naomi told Ruth, go away from me. Go back to your many gods. Go back to your mother's house. Go back because the most important thing in life is a husband and childbearing. Go away. And what Orpah heard was difficulty, hardship, and I want no part of it, is what Orpah heard. You're right, Naomi. What was I thinking? We were joking uh, sometime, I think, at small group, that maybe the reason why Orpah was crying and weeping and raising her voice was because she had to, who knows, we don't know how far they had walked to that point. Maybe she had to walk all the way back by herself. <laughs> that was her final outcry. And she kissed her goodbye. It could have been a long walk. And she could have been alone. We just don't know how far from Moab was the crossroads where the sign pointed to Bethlehem, clearly. And another one pointed back to Moab. Either way it is for Orpah, she heard that to go is going to be too hard, too difficult, too confusing, and totally unknown. Yet Ruth heard in the exact same proclamation. She heard salvation. 
Maybe there is a word here for each of us as we bemoan sometimes our lack of putting together a clean presentation of what we call evangelism. Or perhaps we stumble across our words at times and we wish they were sewn up more clearly. By the time you get done with someone, they're more hardened to the gospel than you imagined because of your presentation, you think. That word I was so confusing, they probably have no idea if I'm Hindu or Muslim or a believer in Christ exclusively. I, I don't know. Who knows what's going to happen to them? I'll pray for them as they leave. Maybe at times we also kind of feel a little bit downtrodden on our spirit toward speaking to the witness of Christ and those facts and our relationship to them. And we worry sometimes about the redemption of others based upon our own shoulders and our own attempts at being crafty, wise, and ready, and witty to give the response of the hope that lies within you. We think, oh, the weight of the call to share, the weight of the call to evangelize. I wonder if I won't get it right. Maybe it withholds us from sharing it all because we lack courage. It might be more unclear than clear. I'm just going to let the Lord work it out. It's a wonderful, wonderful picture here of someone who is less than clear on the gospel herself. One who is less than clear on revealing to people the true character of God and his mercy and his grace. And in the hearing of those facts, delivered pretty negatively, less than precisely, Ruth was regenerated. She heard in the most backward evangelism you can imagine. Redemption is offered from the God of Israel. The only difference, I submit, the only difference in the hearing of the facts of the case that are hard, tangible, and measurable they're not ideas, they're realities. And the only difference in the hearing of the facts is the sovereign grace of God being applied to the hearer. We hear this refrain again and again on the lips of Christ throughout his gospel ministry, speaking in parables as the crowds are confused at times, asking, why does he speak to them in parables? And we hear the proclamation, Again and again and again, those who have ears to hear, let them hear. Ruth was given ears to hear. One author comments this way about the situation. I couldn't agree more. Sometimes, quote, sometimes through the most bizarre messengers. Maybe you've heard testimonies where somebody, they're passing around a mic and somebody stands up and tells a story and it is, it is wild. You think, my word, that sounds so terrible. I don't know how they made it to church today. And maybe reminded through those kind of testimonial services when we all tell our own narrative story of how the Lord cried out effectually for us, we heard and we were moved sometimes quote sometimes through the most bizarre messengers and the most unlikely combination of circumstances god proves over and over that it is his gracious work from beginning to end maybe you're here as a trophy of grace out of very bizarre circumstances bizarre messengers. It proves to each of us yet again and again that the work from beginning to end is His gracious work from the beginning to the end. So that is with the rich young ruler as the disciples ask, with man, or who can be saved? And Christ says to each of us this morning, with yourselves or with mankind, with humans, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Number two, the second of two things that we learn about the grace of God in the portrait of Ruth was number one, God's grace is sovereignly administered. And number two, God's grace is irresistible. 
Number two, God's grace is irresistible. How do we see the irresistible work of the Spirit of God within the heart of Naomi? Uh, Again, the, the, the irresistible work of God is the root in the heart. And then we see its fruit in the life. How do we see then that God's grace that laid hold of the heart of Ruth and transformed it from death unto life? And he did so in such an irresistible manner, deep within the heart. How do we see it? And I say to you, we see it in Ruth's resolve. Ruth's resolve is the testimony or the fruits of the root of God's irresistible grace. Simply put, God's saving purposes, please hear clearly, God's saving purposes cannot be thwarted by human will. God's saving purposes cannot be thwarted by human will. That is, when He speaks, He creates. So He creates within the soul, within the human will, That which he proclaims to the soul, to the will. He creates them anew in the proclamation of the gospel. It is a performative utterance. He speaks into the darkness and creates the light. You guys would struggle in elementary school. They do that a lot, you know. We see this in the text in two ways. I want to make it painfully clear, hopefully, that we can grasp that the grace of God sovereignly administered is absolutely unto you who hear it, repent of sin, and lay hold of Christ through faith alone, by grace alone. It is irresistible that you will find Him so lovely when He creates you anew. You will not seek refuge in any other name. And it isn't irresistible for a day, but he supplies for a lifetime. He will renew you with wings as eagles. He will administer medicine to the soul, which is his grace, again and again and again. You will be led away by various trials and temptations, yet he has irrevocably called you unto himself. And it is he who holds you, not your loose grip on him. Let me show you this in two ways as we see again the irresistible nature of the grace of God in the resolve of Ruth. Number one, we see it in the picture of Ruth's resolve against Naomi's rejection. Look in verse 15. You have to appreciate the situation with Ruth. Verse 14 begins with Ruth's response. She clung to Naomi. And now you're thinking, Naomi's going to embrace her. And they're going to have this moment where they're spinning in the desert, holding and celebrating and excited, and they're going to Bethlehem together. No. As soon as she grabs hold of her, Naomi turns to her and says, Hey, 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 see your sister-in-law. She's making the turn. She's going back. She has gone back to her people and her gods. Ruth, return after your sister-in-law. It's less than warm. It's less than welcoming. It's not exciting. It's not affirmation immediately upon Ruth. You did the right thing, Ruth. I'm excited for you, Ruth. Praise the Lord, Ruth. We're going to Bethlehem, to the land of Judah, unto our God, who is the Lord. It's get off of me. There's your sister-in-law. Go after her. I offer you nothing. Stop it. Again, look, simply look at verse 16. Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you. Don't don't." Stop it. You stop it. Don't tell me to return from following you. Stop proselytizing me away. I'm not going to be evangelized like Orla. Stop it. Where you go, I'm going. Where you lodge, I'm going to lodge. And then after she gives her confessional speech of regeneration, verse 18, Naomi finally throws in the towel and says, fine. When she saw the same thing that is evidenced 
when the root of irresistible grace is planted in the heart and the fruit is on display in resolve. She recognized in Ruth, look at me. I'm going. And Naomi says, she saw that Ruth was determined to go with her. What's the response then? She said, no more. Well, all right, fine. Come on. God's sovereign and enabling grace had so awakened Ruth that her commitment to him lie behind her commitment to Naomi. She's going to Bethlehem. She's going unto Israel's God. And Naomi says, don't stop, get off me. It's bigger than you, Naomi. And I'm going. Her commitment to the God of Israel lie behind and underneath her commitment to Naomi. Ruth was not going to allow Naomi to dismiss her. She was going to Bethlehem, to the land of Judah, unto Israel's God. That would be her God. She's done with polytheism. God's grace is irresistible in the picture of Ruth's resolve against Naomi's flat-out rejection after that warm and loving evangelism in the first place. And I said there are two, and this is the second and the final one for our time this morning. Number two, we see the irresistible grace of God at work in the portrait of Ruth by her resolve against remaining a Moabite. We looked early on about the identity of the Moabites early in the book of Numbers when Israel had crossed the Red Sea and they were seeking to enter into the land that God had promised them. And again, the situation that uh, broke loose with uh, the Moabites, not letting them pass through. And again, trouble lay down. I forget how many of the number now, something of the 20,000 range, 22,000 range, were killed for their immorality with the Moabites by the Lord. That is 22,000 or so uh, Israelites. So we know that the Moabite identity is not a good one from an Israel standpoint. Ruth knew it as well. And Ruth's resolve due to the irresistible grace of God is evidenced that she is going to be against, absolutely against, remaining a Moabite. And that is verse 16 and 17, this great confessional gospel comment from Ruth, verse 16. Ruth said, do not urge me to stop to leave you or to stop returning with you. For where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. And then there in the last portion is this identity shift for Ruth. Your people shall be my people. Your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. I draw your attention there to her affirmation that your people will be my people and your God will be my God. That is, if I could summarize, by affirming that Naomi's God and Naomi's people will be her God and her people, she effectively renounced her Moabite identity and she entrusted her destiny to the God of Israel. If it were not, I ask you one last question. If it were not owing to the sovereign grace of God, how else could we explain together? I I submit that we'd be at absolute loss of how to explain Ruth's absolute resolve to an otherwise disillusioned older woman who apparently, and by confession, had absolutely nothing to offer her. Apart from the sovereign grace of God, in other words, How could Ruth see weakness as strength, loss as gain, dying as living? She couldn't. Christ declared, with man that kind of calculation is utterly impossible. 
So I would share with you this morning then in our closing comment that if it is impossible for Ruth, Naomi, Orpah, it is, it is impossible for them in the story to make the wise calculation for Christ that forsaking all I take Him. I get rid of everything that's provisional and security. I get rid of it to lay hold of Christ alone, through faith alone, by grace alone, unto the glory of God alone. If I cannot make that calculation, then what am I to do? I'm to cry out in the hearing, in the awareness that I cannot return to Christ to forsake all, take Him, cry out in His name, forgive me, Unite me to you. Be my treasure. Be my Lord. Be my King. For I do admit that with my own human condition, frailty, and sinfulness, it is impossible for me to save myself. But by your power, sovereignly administered in the irresistibly wrought my soul. Salvation is possible. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would enable us to hear your word effectively, that it would sow righteousness in the soul, that anyone here who has ears to hear the simplicity of the gospel announcement, let them hear. Let us, your people, be renewed, confronted in our sin, affirmed in your covenant, strengthened by your grace this Lord's day. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. That's the worship team if they come forward.